All right, so we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, just working our way through the Gospel. And here today, Jesus talks about fasting, patches, and wineskins. Here we go. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So Jesus' ministry was filled with criticism for virtually everything he did, everything he taught. Here, he is being criticized for not fasting as much as the others. He gets criticized for healing on the Sabbath. He gets criticized for eating a snack on the Sabbath. He gets criticized for not washing his hands the right way. He gets criticized for claiming that he is older than Abraham. He gets criticized for claiming to be one with God. He gets criticized for casting out demons and they say you must be doing it by the power of Satan. So, if you want to avoid all criticism, just don't follow Jesus, because he gets criticized a lot, right? Now, many times, what Jesus does is he takes the criticism, and he turns it into a teachable moment, right? Today, he's criticized for not fasting as much as the others, So he responds with three analogies, an analogy about being the bridegroom, an analogy dealing with patches, and one dealing with wineskins. And what what I want to do is I want to look at these things, and I want you to see three things. First of all, the insubordination of Jesus. He doesn't give in to their criticism. He doesn't submit to their legalism. Then, I want you to see the audacity of Jesus. He turns this into an analogy of being the bridegroom. Of course, you, you can't fast when the bridegroom is with you. And then, I want you to see the incompatibility of Jesus with all other systems of religion. You can't take a new patch and put it on uh, an old garment. All right? So, uh, the, the outline is the insubordination, the audacity, and the incompatibility of Jesus. All right, so here we go. First of all, 
the insubordination of Jesus. So now John's disciples, the followers of John the Baptist, they, he had disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, an essential piece of information that you need to know the, the, the Old Testament only had one required day there where you needed to fast, the Day of Atonement. Through religious tradition, the Pharisees added more days to the point it became you were, you were required to fast two times a week. Mondays and Thursdays. So, I would say going from one biblical day of fasting to 104 days of fasting is probably a bit legalistic. Okay? That's a third of your life you're not eating. The Pharisees then turned fasting into the public sign of who was truly spiritual. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees who let everybody know they're fasting by being gloomy. Oh, fasting for the Lord today. And it says they disfigure their faces. So um, if you're a Pharisee and it's a Monday or a Thursday, you're letting everybody know You are super spiritual because you are fasting. Now, um, there are two major heresies. There's, There's many more than that, but the two major heresies are legalism and license. Those who were here on Wednesday night, we looked at at Jude, and uh, Jude talks about license. What is license? Well, let me read this. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who, here it is, pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So license is saying, oh, God is gracious. He forgives us. He he pours his grace upon us. Let's sin away. It's taking a license to sin based on the cross of Christ. Okay, So that's license. Taking the grace of God and sinning away. The other extreme, the other major fallacy is legalism. Legalism is is saying, well, God gave these commands. Let's add some more commands around it to protect us from breaking the command. And then let's add some more laws around that and some more laws around that. And pretty soon you have this burden of laws to prove that you are spiritual. Now, there's plenty of room in between for Christians to differ on different spiritual issues. Let let me throw out, for example, 
homeschool, Christian school, public school, what you watch on TV. Now, there's, there's clearly wrong, and then there's clearly, there's clearly sinful and clearly um, a little bit narrow, but there's plenty of room in the middle for people to disagree over that. Food and drink, okay? Christians can have different opinions. In Romans chapter 14, Paul spends the whole chapter saying, hey, here's how you deal with these different opinions in the middle. Love one another and don't be judging one another. But then on the, on the ends, you can fall into license or legalism. Now, you would think Jesus would go easy on legalism. Because after all, what harm can it be to add some extra precautions to God's rules. But Jesus doesn't put up with it. He refuses to play by the man-made rule game. All right? He is insubordinate when it comes to them saying, hey, you're not spiritual because you don't fast 104. Now, now he's not against fasting. He just came off a 40-day fast. Right? Anybody, anybody knows about fasting, it's Jesus. But when they impose it on everybody and judge one another, Jesus doesn't put up with it. Let me show you another place where he really lets them have it. In Matthew 15. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So there was no uh, set rule for how you had to wash your hands, but the tradition of the elders came up with, and they still do it today, um, you had to pour water over your hand and it had dripped down to your elbow. You had to then do it with the other hand. And They have cups um, by all drinking fountains in Israel, a certain way to wash your hands. And I think I always say there are these ninnies who come up to Jesus. You don't wash your hands the right way. You're not spiritual. And uh, he answers them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? You're nitpicking over how to wash your hands. And he goes on to talk about how they dishonor their parents. Okay. And then he says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he does not buy the let's add rules and impose them upon everyone game. The Apostle Paul, he was fighting a battle where some Jewish people were telling the Gentile Christians, you can't be a Christian unless you get circumcised. And Paul writes to them and he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Right? So Paul, Jesus, the Bible is very strong against legalism. Why? Because it's deadly. Why is it deadly? Well, first of all, it focuses on external behavior, okay? Jesus said they do all their deeds to be seen by others. The motive 
of, of much legalism is not that I'm doing this for God. It's I'm doing it to look good in front of others. But the problem is, it's usually all about external things, dress codes, and attending this and attending that, and uh, external behavior. Now, what that does is it creates incredible self-deception. Because if you just do all the externals, you don't have to deal with your heart. Right? I, I read one pastor who said, I never met a legalist who thought they were a legalist. You know why? Because they do all the externals and they're, they're self-convinced or self-deceived that they're good. And they have no inner analysis. Okay? Here's Jesus' analysis of the legalist. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Can you imagine if, if you dug up a grave of a, of a dead body that had been in there, say, I don't know, six months, what it would look like? But if it had a nice white coat of paint on the outside, he goes, that's what you're like. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay? So first of all, legalism is deadly because it focuses on the external, and then we can ignore the internal. But secondly, it's deadly because it places an unbearable burden on certain people. They, the, the legalists love to see others struggle. As Jesus says in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You see, when you're a legalist, you're not mainly concerned about what God thinks. You're mainly concerned about what others think. And if you can keep the rules, but others are burdened by them, you can smugly go, well, I'm more spiritual than they are. And legalism, by, by definition, turns people, Christians, into competitors. It's me against you. Rather than having compassion for a struggling person, you get smug about it. In fact, Paul writes to the Galatians who had fallen from grace into legalism. And this is the New Living Translation. He says, what has become of the happiness you once had? You would have taken out your own eyes if you could have, uh, if you could have and given them to me. And that's where some people think Paul's thorn in the flesh was maybe he had bad eyes. And um, this is a reference to them. But he says, when I first came to you, you would have sacrificed everything for me. And now you're not happy. You're gossiping behind my back. You're nitpicking. This legalism that has crept in has turned you into competitors. Okay? So, first of all, Jesus just doesn't give in to the legalism. He doesn't submit. Okay? So now, here's what he does. He turns the question 
into an opportunity, into a teaching opportunity to reveal who he is. And he does this quite often. A challenge comes his way, and he answers it, but then he points to himself. So it says this, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, um, back in the day when he lived, if a couple got married, they would have a reception, a seven-day reception. And you were really happy. You live in a small village, and, oh, so-and-so's getting married. We're going to celebrate for seven days. And they would have banquet, and they would have dancing. Yeah, they were not Baptists. They would have dancing, right? Um, <laughs> they, uh, they looked forward to these celebrations, and there was a tradition that developed where you were not allowed to fast. You had to feast when the bride and the bridegroom were present. Now, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, right? Jesus is saying, a time is coming when I'll be, I'll be out of here. And then they will fast in that day. You can go back to your regularly scheduled fasting, okay? But I'm the bridegroom. And while I'm with you, there should be no fasting. He's not against fasting. He himself fasted. He's... He is for saying, I'm something special. And while I'm here, just like the bride and the bridegroom at the feast, you know, while they're there, you don't go on with life as normal. My presence is a big deal. I think of what Ron, Ron Burgundy, I'm kind of a big deal. But he's not, he's not saying it out of arrogance. He's saying, do you realize... Can you read the times? The Messiah is in your presence. You can't go on as normal. You know, he criticized them for not being able to read the signs of the times. He answered them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. They could, they could read the, the signs of the weather. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know that? If it's nice red sunset, um, it's going to be a fair day the next day. But if you wake up and it's kind of red and, and, uh, in the sky, it's going to be stormy. Okay? And he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, the weather, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. God is in your midst. Stop fasting. Celebrate. Okay? Now, Jesus did this a number of times where he turns the conversation and it points to him. C.S. Lewis, you know, he has that famous quote. Do I have it here? Yeah. Uh, he says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You know, some people say, I want, I'll accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but he, come on, he's not God. A person who says 
the things Jesus said about himself would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Great moral teachers don't say about themselves what Jesus said about himself unless they're God or crazy or satanic. Okay? Let me give you a, a, another example of this. Um, he's talking about the fact that the, most of the people in his generation didn't believe in him. They didn't repent and believe in him. And he says, um, let me... Let me talk about Jonah. Now, <laughs> Jonah, on one sense, was kind of a creep because he didn't want to preach the gospel to Nineveh. On the other hand, he was a Billy Graham because when he preached, the entire city of Nineveh repented. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty great result. So Jesus says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something, and the the New Living says someone greater than Jonah is here. He doesn't just say, hey, you're in trouble for not repenting the people of of Nineveh are going to rise up at Judgment Day and condemn you. Because Jonah preached to that. He could have stopped there, and that would have made a point. But then he throws in, oh, by the way, someone greater than Jonah is here. Who does that? He goes on. The queen of the south, queen of Sheba, today Yemen, the queen of the south, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So people would travel from from the the known ends of the earth because they heard that this brilliant man, this king of, of Jerusalem, king of Israel, spoke profound words and proverbs, and they, they heard that God had made him rich and powerful, right? So they would travel from all over the world to sit at his feet, even the Queen of Sheba, and, and she'll rise up and judge the people who are bored with Jesus. Oh, and by the way, someone, something greater than Solomon is here, pointing to himself. So Jesus, and and why is is he doing this? He he looks like a poor preacher, but he's God. And I'm sure even the apostles didn't understand all this until after his death and resurrection. But now they go back and they go, oh, I see what he was saying. He wasn't being an egomaniac. He was taking all these criticisms, turning them around and saying, look, you can't, you can't fast when the bridegroom is here. Okay? So, one last thing we want to look at then. And I'm going to... I had a bunch of scriptures we were going to look at dealing with uh, times when Jesus calls attention to himself. And if, if he says, you know, um, I am the light of the world. If you come to me, you won't stumble around in darkness. Who says that? 
unless you're God, right? All right, last thing I want you to see is the incompatibility that Jesus has with Judaism, especially legalistic Judaism, and all other religions, okay? And he gives these two examples. One, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. All right, so, you know, today, if you tear your clothes, you just throw it out and you go on Amazon and get three new ones, right? Back then, fabric was very valuable, very expensive, and if you had a tear, you would patch it. Patching was an important thing. But you would want to match a shrunken piece of cloth as a patch with your already shrunken clothes. Or if you sew the new patch on the old garment, when it shrinks, it's going to ruin the garment. What's he saying? You can't just patch me into your old Judaism. I'm a new thing. You don't just take a patch of Jesus and patch him into Judaism, right? He goes on, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So if uh, you have old, they're already stretched out as far as they can be stretched out wineskins, and you put new wine in there, as it ferments, the gases are going to burst the wineskin, right? So you pour new wine into brand new soft wineskins, so when they expand, they don't burst. Again, Jesus is saying, here, here, here's what he's saying. I am the fulfillment of Judaism. And now that I'm here, you can't just pour me into the old traditions and the old ways. You can't just take a little patch of me. I'm a brand new thing. So, you know, theologians, there's covenant theologians and dispensational theologians. And what covenant theologians emphasize is... The, the continuity, the sameness between the old and the new covenant. They're always emphasizing the sameness, that there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And dispensationalists, on the other hand, are that was then, this is now. It's a different dispensation, and they're emphasizing difference. Now, both are important. There is continuity. Remember, Paul in Romans 4, he, he says, you know, this salvation by faith thing that I'm preaching to you, this isn't new. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there is continuity, but there's also a time to emphasize discontinuity. And here Jesus is saying, don't think I'm just one of the many prophets and you could just take a little patch of me. 
I'm exploding the whole thing, okay? So I, I always point to Colossians 2.16 to show um, how radically different things are between old and new. So Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with, re- with regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So these are all the the Old Testament practices, especially the food laws, right? They had to eat kosher. And then they had festivals. Their whole calendar, it was all planned out with religious festivals. And then he even includes the Sabbath here. Next week we're going to talk about that some more. Um, But these are all pictures or shadows. He says these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now that I'm here, Jesus is saying, why are you dabbling in the shadows? The reality is here. Okay? So, um, I, like to, I always like to use the picture of the, the loved one who goes off to war. And the family has a picture of him and they, they put it up on the mantle and every day they just admire the picture. They talk to one another about how wonderful the picture is and how much they love the picture. And one day he bursts through the door and he says, I'm, I'm home. And they go, shh, we're admiring the picture. That in essence is what they did. They said, yeah, 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 Jesus, just, you know, fall in line. We'll, you, we'll, we'll patch you in. You're, you're kind of, we're, you're, your teachings are kind of interesting, but we got to carry on as normal. It's a Thursday. You should be fasting. And they totally missed, uh, missed it. Now, um, there, is, there are those who want to just patch Jesus onto Judaism or onto Hinduism or onto, you know, you, you name it. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't patch me in even just to Judaism. But there's another way this can be applied. In our own personal lives, many people say, I have my life, I have my routines. Yeah, I have my faults, I have my sins. But I hear about Jesus and, yeah, I'll take a patch of Jesus and add him to my life. You don't just take a patch of Jesus. He radically changes everything. And when you come to Jesus, you want him to change you. You expect change. See, I think our our problem in American evangelicalism is, yes, we, we, we want to have customer service. We want to accommodate people, we want to speak their language, but we can go so far as to say, hey, hey, let's make this so easy for you, and we'll just slip Jesus in, and you can just patch him into your life. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. He wants radical change. came across this little writing called $3 Worth of God. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, 
just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. If Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride, believing in him is like getting married. And when you marry someone, I hope you know and you expect and you desire change. Right? And he didn't hide this. He said, hey, I got to be number one. I am, I'm, I'm to be loved more than your father and mother and wife and children and even your own life. And the true disciple doesn't say, no, 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 I just want a patch. The true disciple says, yes, sign me up, I'm in. All right, let's pray. Lord, I marvel at how you take the simple elements of life, patches and wedding festivals, to teach us truth about who you are and what you expect. And um, Lord, we are, are grateful that you don't just say, hey, fit me in if you can, but you want to marry us. And Lord, just remind us as we close today uh, what a joy it is to be in this relationship with you, the bridegroom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.